Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast, where the coffee is so good, it's like a trip to Mars. Because we're all about exploring new frontiers and fueling up for the journey. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I hope B2B SaaS founders like you grow from traction to scale. Here, growth is more than just numbers. It's about crafting a future-proof company, premium valuation, and leaders who build a business of significance while living epic, adventurous lives. There's an old TV show that some of you might remember called Maverick with James Garner. And I mean, old TV show like Black and White Old. It was turned into a movie with Mel Gibson a few years back as well. It's a Western. And Maverick was a poker player who navigated the game and opponents with a mix of wit and cunning. He would always get himself into a pickle but seemed to find his way out without getting dirty. Not your typical Old West gambler persona. What reminded me of that this week was a conversation I had about pricing and go-to-market. The person I was talking to is a SaaS founder and thinks about sales and negotiations like Texas Hold'em. Really interesting perspective. Setting the right price for your SaaS product requires a delicate balance of understanding your competitor's moves, gauging the perceived value of your solution, and playing your cards right to entice customers. It's not just about slapping a number on your product, but crafting a pricing strategy that positions your offering as the winning hand in a really crowded marketplace, like you're the one that's dealing the aces. So that when the chips are down, your SaaS solution comes out on top. And thinking about it that way made more sense to me. I tend to think of pricing and negotiation as more playing with a prospect, not against them. But certainly thinking strategically without resorting to the old tactic of just bluffing your way through. So how do we craft a pricing model that stands out from the crowd without just pulling numbers out of our thin air? We'll just go with that. Pulling them out of thin air. The first option is value-based pricing. Instead of playing a game of follow the leader with your competitor's pricing strategies, why not let your customers dictate the terms? Enter value-based pricing. The approach involves understanding the perceived value of your product from your customer's perspective. For instance, if your SaaS solution saves a company 10 hours of manual labor per week and they value their time at $100 an hour, then $1,000 a month for your solution seems like a bargain. That's you know four to one. You know, it's like setting the price of an umbrella based on how much it's raining, which I think is different than the opposite of that, not value-based pricing, but kind of price gouging maybe. And that's like the 10 cent water bottle that's sold for five bucks at the airport. So it's value, not opportunistic pricing. I think there's a, a distinction to be made there. The second would be like a tiered pricing strategy. A lot, a lot of SaaS companies do this. So, you know, why put all your eggs in one basket with one size fits all pricing, which can be simple. A tiered pricing strategy allows you to cater to different segments of the market, small startups to enterprise giants, you know, call for enterprise pricing. It's kind of like a menu at a restaurant. Not everybody wants a steak. Some are happy with a salad, although steak is a lot better. By offering a range of packages, you can attract a wider audience and provide an entry point for smaller customers to grow into larger ones. So they upgrade. And that's ultimately what we want them to do anyway, right? 
which kind of brings us to a third option, and that is freemium. And sometimes the best things in life are free, or you know, they start that way. Freemium model can be a powerful tool in your pricing arsenal. It's like giving away a free sample of your product with the hope that customers will get hooked and eventually upgrade to a paid plan. Now, it certainly lowers the barrier to entry, but also allows you to demonstrate value of your product firsthand. I mean, does it work? Do they start paying? Do they actually upgrade? Hmm, sometimes, not always. And we'll see what today's guest has to say about freemium. Might be surprising. But whatever you do, choosing a pricing model for your SaaS is not about mimicking competitors or pulling numbers out of your, we'll say pulling numbers out of a hat or, or other places. It's about understanding the value you provide, offering options to cater to a different customer need. And sometimes maybe a taste for free to whet the appetite. So by adopting a strategic approach to pricing, you can stand out in a crowded market and then attract the customers who are willing to pay for the value you deliver. I think that's really important is that we're delivering so much value that the price is, is just not something that is even a concern because there's so much value from your solution. So how do you set prices today? Love to hear about that. Uh, drop me a note in the comments. How's it working for you? Well, speaking of value, and we're all about value, you know what's really valuable to SaaS leaders? That is SaaS Open. So come hang out with me and a thousand other SaaS leaders in Austin, March 28th and 29th. Get an inside look at the future of software and spend time with the people who are making it happen. There'll be five stages with valuable content in short 20-minute segments. Each one is focused on a different role. We have SaaS founders, CMOs, heads of product, sales, engineering. The best way to predict the future is to create it. So come do that with us March 28th and 29th. We'll be speaking at a couple of sessions, five monster SaaS founders must slay to create a scalable business, plus a half day growth intensive. We'll be laying out the six core KPIs, world-class SaaS leaders to use to run their enterprise. Incredibly powerful and beautifully simple. You can learn more at sasopen.com. Use code CHAMPION2024 when you register to save a couple hundred bucks on your ticket. So I hope to see you there. Our founder on Tuesday was Derek Ray, CEO at Demand Inc. and Lasso AI. We talked about sales development, startup growth, and the evolving landscape of personalized messaging and AI. Great insights from a multi-time founder. And our expert guest last week was Becky Lawler. She is the brain behind Redpoint content. And it was a great episode and a guest who changed the way I thought about original research and content strategy around that. And I love it when somebody makes me think differently. We've actually implemented our strategies and pretty excited about that. So it's pretty cool. If you missed either episode, go back and give them a listen. My guest today is Dan Belkowski, founder and chief pricing officer at Product Tranquility where he helps high-volume B2B SaaS CEOs define pricing and packaging for new products. You want a savvy pricing strategy that converts, retains, and naturally encourages upgrades? This is the guy who can do it. Welcome, Dan Balkowski. Hey, Dan. Welcome to SaaS Fuel. I am very excited to be here, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Tell me about your journey. How did you end up as an expert for pricing? The chief pricing officer, B2B SaaS CEOs. Oh, man. Well, you know, when I was in kindergarten, I was really enamored with the prices of juice boxes. No, just kidding. Uh, we're just going back there. <laughs> no, I've been in software my entire 20-year career. I started more on the value creation side than the value capture side, as us pricers like to think about it. 
first as an engineer and then into engineering management. Ultimately, I realized that engineering was not a good role for me. The computer didn't care how mad I got at it. It would not run my code. Uh, but ultimately, <laughs> I became a lot more fascinated by how the products we were building in engineering created customer value and then turned into dollars and cents for the business. And this ultimately led me to pursue an MBA. Um, I didn't realize it then, but I was quite lucky with my choice of an MBA program. Uh, the program I went to was widely regarded for its excellence in marketing, but I didn't find out until probably last year that very few schools in general, MBA programs specifically have courses in pricing. So I got to receive my theoretical grounding in pricing there. And then during my graduate school internship, I worked for a very successful Silicon Valley startup that just so happened when I was out there, they were struggling. A question on the CEO's desk was, should they pursue a freemium approach. And so of many projects I worked on them that summer, that's kind of my first real world, hey, here's a pricing related thing. Uh, we may circle back to it later, but TLDR do not recommend freemium. So I can, I can elaborate on that uh, much later. <laughs> but you know, after school, you know, I spent much more time getting deep on the value creation side and product management, product strategy roles. And the companies I worked for acquired a lot of other early stage businesses. So I got to see a lot of the mistakes, both from a product and a pricing and packaging perspective that those early businesses made. And, you know, ultimately, at one point, I decided I was going to go off and do my own thing and being a product person kind of at heart, I thought I would do a product company. And I decided, you know, hey, let me actually go help some folks on the, on the consulting side and realized you know, through you know some amount of trial and error and just discovery that a lot of other folks were struggling with you know, pricing issues. Uh, there's not really uh, a good. You can't go get a degree in pricing if you go take a product management boot camp or, or any of these <laughs> training programs. Uh, maybe they talk about it for five minutes during a three day course. Uh, so there's a lot of folks out there that are just being like, I don't. I've been asked to do this. I have no idea how to do it. And so now I have the privilege of helping you know, B2B SaaS CEOs and their teams build profitable businesses and fulfill their company's missions. That's very cool. Well, I think pricing and packaging is a real black box in a lot of organizations. You know, how, do, how does somebody set price? How do they decide to, to do that? How do they go to market? And I think the most common thing is they just go look at their competitors and copy that. What do you think about that? And what is a better way to do it if that's not the right way? Mm. Yeah, that's a terrible idea. Uh, so what, uh, let me, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> let me uh, you know, not to, not to take both sides or anything. Uh, no, then don't do that. Uh, <laughs> let me quickly kind of explain why. So I'll use an analogy since most people aren't pricing folks, but maybe you have people in your audience that have had to make product decisions before. Hey, what features should we build, uh, et cetera. One thing I learned very early on in my product management career is don't get enamored with your competitor's product release announcements. Hey, we've got this feature. We've got that feature X, Y, Z. Why? Because doing so, you're making a bunch of implicit assumptions. One is that the features they're releasing is not just some fever dream of the senior executive team that thought these were a good idea and just told the engineering and product development team to go go do it, right? Or the CEO had one conversation with, you know, on the golf course with a customer, with a big customer and said, oh, this is, these are the things we have to go build, right? And now, you know, the company's making hay around what they built. Um, also, there's a bunch of strategic 
decisions inherent in what they built. Are they going after your same target market, like your exact same customers? Do they have the same cost structure? Do they have the same goals? Like, what are they trying to achieve? And all of those things manifest in an external artifact that's a list of product features. Well, your pricing and packaging is the exact same thing. So I'm not going to go look at someone else's pricing and packaging and be like, oh, well, they must have done all their homework. And let me just go borrow that wholesale (laughs) because one, they may not have done their homework. uh, And number two, they probably didn't. Yeah, they probably didn't. They were probably just guessing. And so there's something we call this in the pricing world. There's this concept of herding uh, where, you know, it's like sheep, you know, or lemmings, right? They all, they all flock together and then they all run off a cliff together, right? And that's not a good, that's not a good outcome for the lemmings or the sheep. (laughs) So we don't want to do that. Um, And so they, yeah, so there's not very clear that they've done their homework and, you know, there's one of the things I tell my clients often is there's, there's no silver bullet with pricing. There's only trade-offs and, you know, the end result of you know either a feature list or pricing and packaging is a set of trade-offs that that company made to achieve some objective. And unless you 100% overlap with their objectives, their goals, their organizational capabilities, just looking at them and, and borrowing what they have is, is going to you're going to inherit all that risk. Think of it as just taking on unknown risk mm-hmm. into your organization. Sure. So how do you not do that? <laughs> how many hours do we have? Okay. Um, <laughs> look, I think some one thing I just want to put out here at the beginning, because it was somewhat inherent in your the premise of your question is, when it comes to SaaS pricing, most executives think that what you charge determines your success. In fact, who and how you charge determine your success. Said another way, I would spend the vast majority of my time, 98, 99.9% of my time on what the price tag goes on and little time on what number goes on the price tag. When people hear about pricing, their mind immediately goes to what's the number? You know, do we charge $10 a user, $100 a user, you know, $29.95? Should our prices ends in fives and nines? I love those conversations. They're super fun. I nerd out on it. (laughs) But it's a lot of the tail wagging the dog, if you will. Like At the end of the day, we do have to have a number, but it's the least impactful thing. It's the thing that's the easiest to change if we happen to get it wrong. And there's many more upstream decisions that are much more important. Highlighting the two things I mentioned, like who are we charging? Who are we actually going after? Much like in product management, you know, there's no average customer. So if you build an average product, it's going to satisfy absolutely no one. You're going to find the exact same yep. thing and willingness to pay across customers in different contexts. And then how we charge are all the different elements of packaging that we need to sort through that help us tell a value story that aligns with how we help customers achieve their outcome and doesn't confuse them. So let's dig into that a little bit more. When you talk about, you know, what you're putting that tag on, how do you decide what goes into it? How do you decide you know, what that thing is and, and maybe different levels. Yeah. So normally we go to like break it down on a high level and then we we can get into some of the specifics. So I see usually companies face four significant challenges when they try to tackle pricing. They have an unclear target customer profile. They don't understand what customers they're serving. Um, They have a poor understanding of how they create customer value. 
they are clear on about their unclear about their product's unique differentiation. I am constantly amazed how often I go and talk to product leaders or CEOs and I say, who is your customer and why do they buy? And I get a blank look. And I, and the thing is to me, that's, that's endemic of sort of the, the core issue. It's kind of like, if you can't answer that question, you have fundamental strategic problems. Like you cannot right. do a, a rigorous pricing, forget about pricing and packaging. Like, how do you know what you build? Like, how do you like, just <laughs> like, how do you know what, what, you know, the, support the value chain, right? Are you just every day being like, well, I don't know, customer asked us to do this. So we're, we're doing it. So helping them really think through those elements. And then finally, you know, that they have a general underappreciation for the depth of decisions that go into a strong pricing and packaging approach. Again, we tend to think of pricing as a decision mainly around what I term the price level, that $10 or $100, $29.95, and neglect many right. other factors. So this kind of situation I've encountered over and over led me to create what I call my services model for SaaS pricing. A services stands for the four components of the model. So it's S, V, C, and S. I promise this is a happy accident. I didn't plan it this way. Uh, but the four <laughs> components are segments, value, competition, and strategy. And so we need to really understand our customer segments first. The context our customers is in is critical because that will dictate the constraints they're facing, what value drivers they view as most important. Um, you know, very simply, uh, there, there's a longer version of this game we could play if, if, if you're interested. But, you know, we could take anything. We'll take the most commoditized uh, thing in the world water. If you walk into a gas station, <laughs> you may be willing to pay $2 for a bottle of water. Jeff, if you've been wandering in the Mojave Desert for a week, your willingness to pay for that bottle of water is significantly greater than $2. I don't know what it is, but I'm yeah. guessing it's greater than two. Yeah. There's like no limit. <laughs> I mean, at that point. If thousands of gallons end up in your basement because of a hurricane, you are willing to pay a reputable plumber a huge amount of money to come and clean it up because that water has negative value to you. So your context right. is decisive in understanding what does that product service mean to you in terms of what you're trying to get done in the context that you're in. So we start there and then uh, understanding uh each segment will rank order different value drivers differently, uh, which cause them to value your product differently. You may have customers that come in to your product for completely different use cases. And sure. so, you know, if you think about a big piece of enterprise software, oftentimes what you see is that there'll be customers that come to you because they just want this little thin slice of functionality. Right. Well, you have other customers who are like, no, we buy into the whole vision. We need, we're going to integrate this. We're going to wrap our entire uh, organization around it. The folks who are coming into you for just that thin slice, they don't, they have different value drivers. They're going to, they're, they're not, they don't care about the rest of your, of your vision, right? They're not. And, and, right. and, and so we have to, un we want to understand that upfront because otherwise we're going to make unconscious, unthoughtful, uh, assumptions and decisions later. And so then uh, third part, we need to consider the competition. So different segments have different competitive alternatives available to them. You know, what would they use if your company did not exist? So oftentimes, right, if I just use that, continue on that example, I just, I just mentioned, you know, if you've got a big enterprise piece of software, but there's a customer who's like, oh, I own, or a set of customers that only come to you for a thin slice, 
Well, there might be little point solutions out there in the market that you're getting compared to that are, you know, a hundredth of your, of your cost. So do you want to bend like you, so this is, gets us into strategy. Now we have to think about, we can't be everything to everyone. So who is it that we want to serve? How do we, where are we best suited to play and win? How do we position ourselves in the minds of those specific customers in order to clarify our differentiated value? And then how do we make all the necessary trade-offs among different elements of SaaS packaging and pricing to ultimately you know, result in a, in a final answer? And so we want to be very conscious up front that because, because otherwise, the what ends, tends to happen if you don't do that is infinite flexibility. Well, we want to we want to make an exception for this kind of you know customer, right? right? Uh, and then you drill down with sales. You're like, look, out of all the opportunities you had in 2023, how many of them came to you for this situation? Uh, well, there was <laughs> at least two or three. Okay, but yeah, your team yeah. closed a thousand opportunities. Like, do you want to onboard and train every single sales rep? on this nuanced, like, oh, we can make it do this other thing, or or we have to, you know, all the reporting systems that have to, you know, be built on top of it to, to account yeah. for this one-off thing. Right? So I think company as a whole has to, hey, look, they're not, they're not, they're not bad people. They're not bad customers. They're just not a fit for us. And just let's be conscious about that up front of what, where are we trying to compete and win? Because we can't, you know, it's like, look, there's, there's, I don't know, 20 major auto manufacturers. There's one out there for everyone. None of them is necessarily better than, than the other, you know, in, in an absolute sense. But yeah, you know, some people are BMW drivers and some people are Toyota drivers and some people loves Teslas. And hey, look, everyone could go find what works for them. And I'm sure each of them want to incrementally shift their, their market share. But, you know, that's this is how, you know, the world works. So we need to understand where do we best sort of derive value and, and, and then build a pricing and packaging framework around that. I think that's a really, really good example because people can relate to that. You know, they think about different car models and, and they're, they're different market segments. They're, they're marketed to different groups of people. You know, BMW is not marketing to the same people that Kia is. And it's not that one is right and one's wrong. It's just they're different market segments. They understand their consumers. Exactly. And so I think that's, you're, you're right. It's really focusing in on, on who is it. And, and if you price based on that, the, the customer that's coming to you that wants that little sliver of functionality and they look at it and they go, oh, it's too expensive. And so, okay, we've got to drop our price. They're saying it's too expensive. That's because we're attracting the wrong kind of person. If, if that is the wrong kind of person, where if we're looking for the ones that really see value in the whole thing and, and they look at it and go, wow, it's too cheap. It's probably not a serious solution. So is it too high? Is it too low? It's it's it all comes back to who is it that you're selling to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Now, pricing is one of those things that I think you know. Like I said before, black box. How do you balance then, like competitiveness and profitability? Um, so I think there's. So I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. Um, number one, you're right. I think there's yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, there is a distinctive difference between. Um, you know, uh, I don't want to get I don't want to get political here, but there's a there is a you know if if we think more of the the socialist communist idea is there's a fixed pie of economic value that worries about how do we divide that pie among multiple folks. Right in capitalism, 
there is no fixed pie. The pie that we want to make the pie bigger. Yeah, there, there's, there's a, there's, there, the pie doesn't even exist as a concept. There, there's economic value created by the hard work and talents of people bringing innovative solutions to market that allow us to do things we couldn't do before. Allow us to harness energy, whether that's you know. Uh, human intellect, uh, human uh, physical labor, or you know, uh, or now this uh, this world of AI uh, machine uh, overlords that we have uh, bring to bear to <laughs> achieve and create things on a scale never before possible. Yeah. So I think the distinction of competitiveness, profitability, if I put it in that framework, they're sort of old school, mature markets. I don't know, cereal. If I'm sell, if I'm the brand manager for Wheaties, like yeah, market share is a really important metric because I don't know, like yes, we could try to grow the overall volume of of cereal eaters, but it's it's a mature <laughs> category. It's been around for a hundred years. It's probably not yeah. changing that much, and so all of my growth is going to be dependent upon stealing market share from other players in the space. If you are considering, I just let me finish the point real quick. If you're considering yeah. market share as your primary driver, if you're in a tech company, I think you need to have your head examined. Uh, like, like, yeah. because it, it, you know, we're most of the companies that I deal with, you know, are usually creating something fundamentally new there. I mean, maybe not a brand new category, but it's a new way of getting a job done, a new way of thinking. It's a new capability that is enabled by one of these trends of, you know, either uh, mobile or social or, you know, artificial intelligence, whatever it might be. And so I don't know, it does it, you know, just as a uh, rhetorical question, like, what is the market share of generative AI right now? You'd be like, well, I don't know. I maybe could have measured like the amount of revenue OpenAI, uh, Google, DeepMind, uh, Anthropic, et cetera, were doing yesterday. But today that number is probably increased, but you know, it's probably increasing on a daily rate by 10% each day, right? Because right. Uh, so right. so you know, <laughs> so I, I I so there's the competition aspect um, and profitability. I do believe that profitability is the Ultimate increasing long-term company profitability is the ultimate goal of pricing, uh, right? It should not necessarily, if you're in a market share mindset, I think you're fundamentally going to make some unfortunate trade-offs. If I go back to competition, it's this idea that, look, we all do need to make strategic trade-offs and focus our resources where we can win. And it's not a zero-sum game head-to-head because often as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, you're going after different customers, you have different capabilities, you have different cost structures, uh, and you have a different overall strategy, you know, uh, however that unfolds. And so I just don't think it's a zero sum game in terms the competition is relevant because the, because buyers exist in the market. And so when I'm at the grocery store, I'm looking at, you know, the store brand OJ versus Minute Maid OJ. Um, so I'm not saying competition is irrelevant, but you know, that's the, that's the, that's the orange juice aisle. Like most of us are not playing in the orange juice aisle. That's the, you know, or the cereal category. If we are, we need to, to figure out how to get out of that and, and really differentiate. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I know that, you know, there's, there's very smart, well-meaning folks at Gartner and Forrester, et cetera, that want to throw us in a, uh, a magic quadrant or, or some sort of hype cycle, uh, diagram with, with everyone else. And, and we've, I think some people, you know, 
enjoy that, especially if they get put at the top. And then everyone else who's not in the, the upper right of that diagram is like, oh, forget about that. That's not even, that doesn't even make sense, right? That's not how we think about the market. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, when you're talking with, with CEOs or other stakeholders in the organization and proposing new pricing strategies or doing things different, um, how do you overcome the resistance? And how do product managers take that to, to CEOs or how should CEOs take it to product managers and, and have that conversation and really break down the resistance of, oh, we could never do that or that's too high, it's too low, it's too different? How do we do that? Mm. It's a it's a fantastic question, and there's not necessarily one size fits all answer because different customers are or different clients and companies are in different um, areas. Do you no, find a lot of resistance there, or pretty open to well, the, the well, idea well, of changing prices? Well, let's just say if there's if there's major <laughs> resistance inside the organization, usually they're not picking up the phone and calling me. Uh, usually that's a, that's a second. Uh, by the time by the time <laughs> I get that phone call, you know the CEO and the board would be like, "There's a problem here. We need to fix." Um, uh, but look, I think that there is uh, often uh, resistance inside companies uh, because pricing is often thought of as an event. And if there's one thing I may help your listeners walk away from, pricing is a process. It is an ongoing thing, much like any other process you have in your organization. And so I think some of this resistance comes from this fixed mindset that, oh, well, we, we did that pricing five years ago, so we're good. Right. right. Um, and so I just don't think that that's, you know, that's reality. Look, ultimately, there's only three ways to grow a SaaS business, acquisition, retention, monetization. That's it. All of the air until maybe last year was focused on acquisition. Uh, I think retention started to get a little love as, as, as some of the, the new business acquisitions slowed down uh, and some of the, the easy uh, venture money dried up where people couldn't just completely outbid themselves on, on uh, CPMs on Google and Facebook anymore. So it was like, oh, well, we, it's a lot harder to acquire, so let's retain. Um, and I think monetization is, is, is making a pace. But if we think about, look, there's an entire department set up to do demand generation. Right. There's an entire department set up yep. for retention, customer success. Like, do you have a function that is responsible for your monetization? Because your market is changing. Your customers are changing their pricing and packaging. They're releasing new features. Um, I don't know. You get 50 year historic high inflation. That might change how you want to view your pricing and packaging. Um, other macroeconomic yep. factors like, oh, we're going into a recession. And so now going back to what I was saying before on customers segments having different value drivers, perhaps your main customer segments, they were valuing your product before on the amount of revenue you drove. In 2023, it'd be like, how much cost can you help us save? And so their perceived value of your product shifted because the fundamental macroeconomic factors of the business uh, world changed how customers perceived the job your product was hired to do for them. It went from re generating revenue to saving costs. And all of a sudden, their perception of your of your overall product value changed in, in, in an instant, not because of anything you did, but because of the macroeconomic factors. So a couple points I would recommend. One is having a governance around pricing, treating it as a process, having a documented process, having an owner. And I generally recommend 
a pricing committee or what's called a pricing council and having someone with decision-making authority on that pricing council uh, because, you know, so couple couple points here. <laughs> a common, you know, complaint or, or refrain about that retort around that argument is, <laughs> you know, it's like the argument about uh, <laughs> you don't want anything to happen. Send it to Congress, right? <laughs> like, don't want anything to happen. Let's have a meeting, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, right. Which I generally. Well, when you said committee, my first thought was, oh, not a committee. Oh, uh, yeah, no. I, and look, look, I, I get it. Um, it. Let's use let's use go back to product management. So, product management is a you know in the world a relatively new function. Let's say, especially in tech, let's say it's maybe 30, 40 years old, brought over by Microsoft as a uh, archetype on the uh, brand managers from CPG. Why did why was there a necessity for a product management function? Because you had a bunch of these organizational departments all fighting about what they should do, and there was no one there to actually drive the business forward. Like, you know, a product manager is <laughs> a couple of different ways I've, I've learned over time. Often a disappointment manager, and often your job is to marshal <laughs> through the best worst decision. You're going to make somebody angry, yeah. you know, uh, and just you know, as a, not to pick on the customer support people, they do an amazing job. I could never do their job in a million years. But look, if if the head of customer support had their way, the company would never ship new features because every time you ship something new, the support right. volume goes up. <laughs> so That's product right. manager is the walking, talking personification of the product. Their job is to you know, advocate, understand, and advocate for all the stakeholders simultaneously with the ultimate stakeholder being the business and often for the customer because the customer is not in the room in these discussions. But we don't have that level of 40-year maturity on the pricing side. Until we yeah. do, a pricing council, pricing committee is my band-aid with the idea that most companies should eventually have a pricing person inside the organization. Um, Makes sense. Even at you know Fortune 500 companies, I think the statistics are less than 50% have anyone with a pricing title in their uh, name. I think that's the same in tech. I think data I saw from like OpenView had done a survey. I think it's even IPO stage companies with like 100 million ARR plus are, I think it's like less than 50% of those have, a, have someone with a pricing title in their name. Um, and you're going to have pricing problems well before you hit 100 million ARR. Uh, so you better have somebody in the building who's oh, yeah. keeping their eye on it. Uh, and generally, I recommend that product marketing own it and we can get into, into why. But you know, I, I recommend product marketing is the you know, appointed you know, leader, uh, but then also they bring in all the other stakeholders because you'll find much like changing anything in product, a pricing and packaging decision is going to affect all the different stakeholders in the C-suite. So everyone's going to have an opinion and yeah. you want someone to... Serve, be able to serve that same uh, greasing of the skids function that a product manager does to help the the business make progress, make decisions, you know, and uh, and and own that uh, own those metrics for the for the business. That's yeah, a really really smart way to do that. Thank you. I get asked all the time, you know, which which pricing model is best? Is it freemium? Is it product led growth? Is it usage based? Is it shared results? You know, should we be product led, sales led? And and the the answer they all work. But in different scenarios, in the beginning, you said, you know, you talked about freemium and you said, don't do that. I am interested to know just kind of what you're seeing that has worked. And, uh, you know, is there a time for freemium or is there a time for not that? And how do you choose what pricing model is right for your organization? Oh, man, this is a juicy question. 
Um, I have to do some stretches, uh, do my jumping jacks. Uh, for, for anyone who uh, does does know me, uh, they may get a kick because uh, actually my my LinkedIn about is, is has nothing to do with me and is everything my rant against freemium and how much I, I dislike it. So <laughs> I don't like freemium either. I, I think it discounts the value as the, of an organization. But go ahead. Yeah. So freemium, as you pointed out, is is a monetization model, a pricing model. Uh, I want to be very clear about terms. So, because freemium uh, literally means you have a free, fully free version of your product, and then you have additional premium offers you can pay for. Um, sometimes that gets confused for folks who are not as nerdy about pricing and business models as me around like multi-sided networks. Like, like Facebook is not freemium. You know, it's a it's a multi-sided network of which the advertisers are paying, and you as a user are the product that they're selling eyeballs to. Right. right. Um, right. So uh, that's not freemium. Uh, there's uh, Spotify. A fourteen day uh, trial is not freemium. Uh, pr- yes, yeah, so that's freemium. That, that's also a free tr- yeah, free trial versus freemium is a good distinction. Yeah. Other one is like uh, something like Spotify. I'm a premium Spotify user, so I don't know if they still have it. But you know, like Spotify has like an ad supported free version. I don't, I don't view ad supported free as freemium because it's ad supported. There's, there's, it's an ad supported business model. Um, you are the product. <laughs> yeah. Again, uh, it's a, it's a multi sided <laughs> network where you are the product. So, so pure freemium where you get no value, you can use it in some sort of unlimited time bound fashion. Um, that's that is freemium. Uh, I contrast that with free trial. And again, I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant here, but before I do that, let me just give you your, your folks the takeaway up front. Anytime anyone mentions freemium in your organization is a good idea, the better answer almost universally is a free trial. A 14 to 30 day yes. free trial is almost always the better answer. There are a couple of exceptions and those exceptions get hammered into people whenever they argue against freemium, but they're only, they don't understand why they're, why they don't, uh, actually prove their argument, but are the rare exceptions in which it, it's valid. Um, so first of all, free trials are extremely valuable in that software is what economists would call an experience good. So um, an experience good is a good where your perceived value of the product changes as you use it. You may have a very good, amazing growth marketing team, CMO, they're doing really good work building videos and landing pages and white papers and trade show demos. All that stuff is great, but there's something in our reptilian mind that doesn't fully click until we get our data inside of a product and we use it and we have that aha moment of like, oh, now I understand how this is going to help me. Yeah. Right. And so there's there's a use for that. Right. And that's what a free trial helps. But it also has this sort of ticking ticking uh, time bomb uh, uh, fuse that we want to uh, we want to leverage for the organization. Freemium goes off the rails because for, for a bunch of reasons. So one is, you know, the, the metrics that I've seen sort of across the board, and this was actually someone, another pricing expert, uh, who I respect, uh, had posted something on LinkedIn, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, I think about Dropbox and, and their numbers are right in line with this best in class freemium companies convert one to per- to 3% of their free users, customers, someone who pays you a user, someone who uses your software, free users into paying customers. 
one to three percent. That sounds expensive. That's expensive. Um, yeah, support ninety seven percent and it no nothing. Yeah, and so so this is what happens. So so number one, I think there's a lot of you know I I often give startup founders uh, advice of beware the lessons you learn as a five million dollar company from. Amazon, Google, Facebook. Oh, Amazon does this. It's oh, yeah. like, well, they they have <laughs> 10,000 of you size companies inside their organization. Like, yes, I'm sure someone in there has done something like that, but that does not pertain to you in your particular situation. Exactly. <laughs> Similarly, I think the same mistake is being made with freemium where B2B companies have borrowed this idea from B2C and it just doesn't tend to work. So. Why is that? Why do I bring that point up? Because if I go back to that one to three percent, in order to meaningfully drive revenue, I've got to have a massive market. I've got to have potentially millions of accounts in order for that to make sense. And so, just generally, most B two B software companies, do, I mean, their TAMs are not that large in terms of number of possible customers uh, that that would have that. Right. So, what else happens? Now you get into this. Mirage. You've got a really great marketing organization. They're doing really hard work every day. They're driving SEO, paid search, you know, social, you know, they're putting on, you know, keynotes, trade shows, all this effort. They go, man, it's really hard to get new leads in the door. Well, look, 99% of our, our user base is just sitting here already in our product. If only we could convert 5% of them. Oh my God, that would be so much more efficient. Well, this is a mirage. I am warning you. There, there be dragons down this path. It does not exist. But what will happen is this conversation will now be like the zombie you cannot kill inside your organization because somebody yep. will bring it up every year as soon as they get pressure to meet their numbers. Be like, well, if engineering would only add this other feature to the free side, then customers, or maybe a, a portion of that feature, or maybe if we just, if, if the UX team was helped like with an onboarding flow or a video that could really highlight what they would get on the premium side or, or the the number of iterations and conversations of this are endless and they're all yep. fruitless. The people, what I've seen over and over again is that the people that would convert, they convert within the first 30 to 60 days and the rest of the people are just going to be right. free users forever. So, yep. so they're just a different segment. And, but I think it causes all of this consternation, frustration, et cetera, in the organization. Um, there's a whole bunch of uh, other uh, side effects, but let me just, because I, I mentioned it earlier, I just want to tie a, tie a bow on the exceptions that always get thrown up. One dimension where area where it is valuable is something like developer tools, um, because in a developer tool situation, there's often, if you think about the end user, you've got an engineer at a company who's trying to, you know, I don't know, embed Twilio or, or SendGrid or some other, you know, some other product in, into their product, but they're going to be working on that feature for months potentially before it ever sees a light of day in production. And so at that point, right. they're not driving any business outcome. They're just trying to make their software work. And it doesn't make any sense to have them engaged in a continuous cycle of sales of extending free trials because they're not really at a buying point. And so in that case, 
I've seen a very useful version of freemium where there's some extremely stripped down free version that allows for that use case where they're not sort of having to, where sales is not wasting time chasing down someone who's not ready to buy, but also that stripped down version is something that no one would ever think to run in production because it would, it would not, it would just fail over in production, right? It couldn't handle the volume or or for some reason, right? right? Or there's licensing terms of saying you can't run this, you know, with this key, you can't run this in production, you know, whatever, however you might structure it. The other is that always gets thrown up is Slack. And um, Slack is an interesting one because they essentially have a version of in the in a two sided marketplace business we often term it as a cold start problem where uh, you know if I'm if I go to eBay as the, the oldest you know two sided marketplace in the world if if I come yep. as a buyer and there's no sellers well I'm gonna I'm gonna leave eBay because like you know so so there's always this problem of who comes first the 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 supply or the demand into a two sided marketplace Slack has a very similar version of that problem where you need like you need to get critical mass in there using it in order for the product itself to have value. So you right. don't want to stem that tide up front by saying, well, every user you add, we have to like license in because you, because their whole ability, for, like the whole core of the product is that so people can talk to each other. If everyone has to get individually licensed, like you want the people from finance to come in and you want to have like, Hey, the head of engineering like has to now go talk to the head of finance in order to get license counts for those people. Like, no, you want the entire organization in there at once, and then at some point, you know, they're going to be reach a value threshold. And so that tends to be a, another uh, that Slack example tends to be the one that people always throw in. You're like, oh, well, what, well, what about Slack? You know, um, the, yeah. the other one is if the, the the third exception is if you have true network effects or true built-in virality. And I think this is where uh, Zoom has done very well because Zoom has, uh, because you get a Zoom link and then you become a Zoom user, even though you're the recipient of that meeting invite. And also if we go back to COVID and even post COVID, Everyone, you know, they, they did almost check that box of, you know, the entire world was their, their potential tab of like, oh, oh my God, we all need Zoom accounts. We didn't know because if yep. I want to talk to my family, I can't <laughs> get on a plane and see them. So even talking to mom and dad became, oh, like maybe I should look at Zoom or, or one of these other, other products. Um, but those are the kind of the critical exceptions. Otherwise, go do a free trial and, and be successful. That's really, really good advice. Well, tell me about your podcast, SaaS Scaling Secrets. You just wrapped up season one. And season two is uh, coming soon. Yeah, well, it's been an adventure. You know, I have been a guest on a lot of podcasts myself. And you know, part of it was I got tired of answering the question of, you know, when are you going to start your own? And, uh, you know, I also, live, <laughs> I also live in Austin, Texas, which yeah. is, you know, home now of, of Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, and Lex Friedman. And so I think, you know, when you, when you get to Austin, they just hand you a microphone and a, a podcast studio as part of your, your welcome package. Uh, so I think it was part of the just necessity. But yeah, so it's been fun. I, I SaaS Scaling Secrets, we focus on, uh, I interview only uh, B2B SaaS CEOs, scale up B2B SaaS CEOs. And the whole idea is, you know, I know there's a lot of, you know, first of all, you know, we can all uh, learn from each other uh, in in many ways. And I think one of the the main benefits I was hoping to give to the world was, you know, there's a lot of companies stuck in that 
sort of five to 20 million ARR range, right? And so I wanted to go yep. talk to the folks that made it to that other side, sort of the, the 20 million plus and dig in and be like, Hey, what, what lessons did you learn along your journey? How, like, what, you know, what did you think you had figured out at 10 million ARR that, you know, just totally broke, you know, as soon as you, you know, went international or, you know, or, uh, you know, COVID happened or, or, you know, you, uh, started acquiring uh, more enterprise customers, et cetera. And so that's, you know, what, you know, it, it, it's pretty free form. We talk about whatever they want, but that's the general idea that, you know, we try to get out of them. So, you know, the founders and leaders that come behind them and even their peers at other similar stage companies can, uh, you know, share their insights. That's fantastic. Yeah, everybody should check out the podcast for sure. We'll wrap up one last question and any memorable pricing fiascos that uh, taught valuable lessons. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, I, so the, <laughs> there's there's so many to count. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll talk about one that was in the public domain recently that that got a lot of airtime uh, in our in in the little nerdy pricing world that I hang out. Uh, so there was a company called Unity, um, and Unity makes a development platform for uh, for games for game designers. Yeah. Um, and yep. uh, Unity rolled out a pricing and packaging change, I think about three or four months ago. It was probably Q3 of, of 2023. And it was just an absolute uh, debacle. Um, and so much so that, you know, the new, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's always interesting when your industry ends up on the front page of the New York times and that, you know, there were front page stories in the New York times talking about, uh, unity's pricing change, uh, debacle. So, um, and then the CEO ended up uh, losing his, his, his job. Um, and so I think there's, you know, I don't have any inside information. I don't know, you know, exactly the conversations that were had inside and what they did and didn't do. But I think that there's, you know, kind of tying it back to your question earlier about, you know, what do you do about folks that are fearful um, where there's risk? Um, one is, you know, there's always going to be risk. You know, you can never be 100% sure how customers are going to react to a pricing change. Yeah. But that does not absolve you of the responsibility to do proper crisis management. Um, and also to be clear in your communications. If I just had to diagnose what happened there from the outside, you know, they, you know, and, and I've seen this over and over again. Reddit had a similar uh, issue with their API charging earlier last year as well. You know, gamers, uh, gamers and Reddit moderators and, and Redditors, uh, those are communities you do not want to screw with because they spend a lot of their time online and forums <laughs> talking to each other. And so, it's true. So when those pitchforks come out and they're organized, your response is, I don't know what the problem is yet, but I know it's our fault. I'm sorry. We're not rolling this out right now. We'll be back with you in 30 <laughs> days with a better plan. In the meantime, we thank you for your feedback and we will update you soon. That is not what they did. Um, and anything other than that response looks, you know, for better or worse, right? It's a crisis scenario. I understand people are, you know, they, they try to explain, but it just looks, it looks defensive and it looks like you're putting the blame on your customers and that's not a good look mm. for you. 
Like even if it even if that. it is in their long term interests, that's not the message you want to send. That oh, you customers are stupid and you just don't understand. Here, let me explain it to you again. <laughs> like so. And again, I'm not saying that's what they said, but that was the that that was the perception. And so you know, I think you know, one is there, and and underlying that was, you know, I I'm a pricing person, and I looked at what they announced, and it was complicated. It was really complicated. And so I think that would be another piece of advice I would give to folks: you could build a beautiful spreadsheet model that just optimizes your pricing to value and all of these nooks and crannies and you know you create the the most beautiful you know uh, any analyst at Goldman Sachs would be uh you know their heart would have flutter with how beautiful your excel workbook is um but customers if they don't understand it and they can't you know get it you're going to have an uphill battle and now I think that that added to their inability to communicate it clearly because what ended I think you know if I look at the, the introductory fanning of the flames. It was, this looks bad for me, but it's so complicated. I can't even tell. And then it was, and then there was just bad communication layered on uh, initial poor communication. And so, you know, you always, when you roll out changes, you know, roll them out intentionally, gradually, you know, as you get feedback, understand, is that valid? Where did we mess up? Like, can we, should we adjust? Should we pull it back? Uh, and then proceed, right? Look, nobody's going to be happy when their prices go up, but customers generally will understand, especially if they're getting a lot of value. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, again, you get to absolve yourself of, of, of crisis management when it, when it happens. That's really, really good advice. Where can people learn more about you and about product tranquility online? Yeah, well, I'm happy to connect with folks on LinkedIn. My name is Dan Balkowski and just uh, send me a connection request there. Just let me, uh, send me a note with it. Uh, let me know you heard me on the podcast. So I could separate it from the rest of the random LinkedIn spam. And then I try to blog <laughs> regularly on my website at producttranquility.com. Uh, folks can also reach out to me there if they want. Um, and uh, happy to have you as a listener on SaaS Scaling Secrets. Awesome. We'll make sure and link all of that in the podcast. And your your blog content is spot on. You got some great, great articles out there. Super valuable. So everybody should be checking that out in the podcast too. It's been a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for having me on. Thanks again, Dan, for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. You can learn more about Dan at Product Tranquility. Com. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. And be sure to check us out on YouTube as well. Full video episodes, shorts, training, outtakes, and more. If this episode sparked a new idea or inspired you, pass on the wisdom. Share it with somebody who would appreciate a fresh perspective. And everyone who shares this week gets a Price Paradise Passport. Not only is it very cool to say and alliterative, it is your ticket to a land where pricing is never a headache and every tag is a ticket to customer satisfaction and profit ecstasy. <laughs> pricing tranquility is what that sounds like to me. Well, join us next Tuesday where our guest is Wes Bush to talk about everything PLG, all the do's, the don'ts, and how to know if product-led growth is right for you and your SaaS. And then next week on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, we have Morgan McCoy to talk about compensation, negotiating goals, reviews, and building a high-performing team, both from your perspective and from your team's perspective. So I will see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. 
Thanks for listening to SAS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.